Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 5th, 2016, and this is episode 1725 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because you know what day it is. It's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right. Time for your questions and answers from the Expert Council. I've got a good one lined up for you today. Appearing on the council today, Ben Falk of Whole Systems Design. Jeff Lawton needs no introduction. Gary Collins, Stephen Harris, John Pugliano, Michael Jordan, and Darby Simpson will be our lineup today. I have... Lots of answers from all the council members already this month. No piking looks like we're in store for us this month, so we'll have great full shows all month long. But what I did here to incentivize the council members to respond as quickly as possible, I took them in the order they responded, and if they got both their answers in, I just took their first answer. Except for Jeff Lawton. Jeff went and played a trick on me and answered both the questions in a single go and did it in a way where like he starts out with, so I'm just going to play both of Jeff's answers today, which are kind of cool and kind of related because they both relate to doing things on contour with swale-like features rather than true swales, which would be kind of cool. Before I get to that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by making sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one today, KnifeKits.com. KnifeKits is a really great company. They've been with us a long time when we vetted them for the sponsorship program. We checked all the blade forums and things like that. And they turned out to be a really great company with just a stellar reputation in the industry. And KnifeKits.com makes it easy for you to learn the skill of knife crafting. It really does for you and maybe for you and your kids to learn that skill together. You can get basic kits that aren't much more complicated than doing, let's say, a, a model car that you would buy when you were a kid and glue together. Uh, you pick out some handle material, some bolsters, and things like that. And if you're not sure what you're doing, they have books and DVDs. They also have great stuff uh, where you can make things out of Kydex and learn that skill as well. America was a, a country that at one time had a hard-line skill set. Uh, people could do things in their own home without calling a guy. Uh, to fix the, you know, whatever it was that wasn't working in your home. Today, it seems like we've lost a lot of those skills. And one way to regain them is to start taking up small hobbies like this and learn these basic skills like fit and finishing, sharpening knives, etc. And hey, if you're a master bladesmith, they have some of the coolest exotic materials you can get your hands on. Check them out today at knifekits.com. Remember, they also do support the MSP or Member Support Brigade with a great discount for you. You can find out about that in the benefits section of your MSB. And sponsor of the day number two today is the awesome, illustrious Chef Keith Snow with HarvestEating.com, where he'll teach you to make cooking a, a life skill by focusing on technique over recipe. If you don't think cooking is a survival skill, brother, you've never lived on MREs for six months like I have. You get pretty creative in those situations. Being able to cook all the food that we talk about growing for ourselves and sourcing locally is a great way uh, to enhance your quality of life and to save money. If you're not, if you know, if you become a great cook, you're not going out to expensive restaurants. And Chef Keith has a lot of ways to help you do that. He has an awesome podcast. He has a really great YouTube channel. And uh, right now he's got some of the coolest uh, sauces you'll ever find, pasta the sauces and new packaging that makes shipping a lot easier. Things like creamy basil, flame-roasted red pepper, sun-dried tomato, and rosemary. Uh, soon he'll be moving things over to Amazon, but for now, just go ahead and check out HarvestEating.com for all of that and more. Remember, Chef Keith will help you make cooking into a life skill. 
With that, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1725. Alex Shrugged has two up for bat for us today. I have, is this the head of your husband, Mrs. Hayes? And my country tis of thee is not Namby Pamby. I'm going to read the one, Mrs. Hayes, and is this the head of your husband? A watchman has found the severed head in a pail in near the Thames. The head is soon identified as Mr. Hayes. Mr. Hayes has beaten his wife, Catherine, after she spent a wild weekend of careless spending, drinking, and you-know-what with a fellow named Billings. Apparently, she resented the beating and resolved to murder her husband. After getting her husband drunk, she convinces Billings and a, few, a fellow named Wood to kill him with an axe. She reasons that Mr. Hayes is an atheist and they're thus not worthy of life. They're reluctant, so she offers them money. It's a deal. Catherine catches the blood in a pail as Wood removes the head. They figure it would be best to get rid of the head to make identification of the body impossible. Billings carries a pail to the Thames and tosses it in. He expects the head to be washed away, but soon the tide goes out. The pail is so exposed. A watchman notices the head inside, and all is lost for the trio of murderers. My take by Alex Shrugged, Mr. Hayes is no great prize, even compared to the men of the day, who were not particularly wonderful in the first place. Mr. Hayes was marginally worse, and when she was put on trial, uh, accounts, I'm sorry, Mrs. Hayes was mar marginally worse, and when she was put on trial, accounts of her wildlife caused such a sensation that the sergeant-at-arms changed a quarter, charged a quarter of an ounce per, of gold per person for admittance, about $285. Mrs. Hayes claimed innocence. The devil made her do it, and she executed her, and she excused her accomplices, saying that money had nothing to do with it. The money she had offered was equivalent of $290,000. She was found guilty and sentenced to garroting, that is, the strangulation with a rope, and her dead body burned at the stake. The sentence was carried out the next year, but the executioner botched it. He was too close to the flame, so he dropped the garrette. Uh, Mrs. Hayes was burned at the stake alive, screaming for an unusually long time. The practice continued until the 13th year of King George III. Thereafter, a woman was simply hanged if she was mur if she murdered her husband. It was considered a mercy. Yeah, it's amazing how the state considers hanging somebody a mercy. And I guess if it's between being burned or hung, it is a mercy. Anyway, um, this is kind of how I look at this one. Y you think that stuff like we see go on in, in the modern world with sensationalist journalism and all, and, and people fascinated at just the debauchery of human condition is new. And it's not. It's, it's, it's very old. So when you hear that we're going to hell in a handbasket or something like that, and like these, this, this is proof that everything is, is going downhill forever or whatever, it's nonsense, really. Um, I, I sure wish we had come further than we have by now. But, but the reality is, as a species, I think we have come further than maybe we're giving credit for. Maybe a little bit more positive way to look at some horrific things in history for a change on a Friday. Anyway, let's go on to, uh, to remind you real quick about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to support the show and the work I do, go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and click on Members and learn more about it there. And we'll just leave it at that today. First thing I want to talk about is, uh, real quick, just a kind of a question for you. Are you considering going to Permaculture Voices 3 in California? Uh, I will be uh, giving a track talk and one of the keynote speakers there. I'm actually doing the closing talk, uh, and I, I promise you it's going to be pretty pretty awesome. 
And Permaculture Voices is pretty awesome. And you'll meet a lot of people that are part of the TSP community and a lot of cute, cool people from other places as well. Uh, Permaculture Voices is, is really an amazing experience as a conference. And uh, I'd just like you to consider, I know it's like we're a month away now and many people have either decided I'm going or not, but if you can get out there, come on out. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Uh, it's definitely worth the investment. The networking alone is is worth you know double what the cost of being there is. It, it really is. Some of the most important parts of Permaculture Voices aren't just the talks, but the after-hour stuff, which is where I'm going to be spending the bulk of my time actually engaging with people in the after-hours uh, because obviously you can't be engaging with people while they're listening to the, the speakers. So uh, do consider coming to Permaculture Voices. Uh, you can learn more about Permaculture Voices by going to permaculturevoices.com. And to learn more about the conference, you'll see a link that says PV3 Tickets and Event Info. Click there. You can find the schedule, all the speakers, all the topics of discussion. And, hey, you get to meet Darby Simpson, who you're going to hear from today. Darby will be there as one of the speakers at PV3, along with myself, many other cool people like Curtis Stone, uh, and a lot of other great folks you really, I think, enjoy hearing from. And, again, I think the networking is worth being there alone. Next up, let's go ahead and uh, take the first question today for an expert council member. This question is for Ben Falk. Uh, the question is, uh, on previous shows, you and Jack have mentioned that you are producing the vast majority of your own food. I believe you had mentioned upwards of 80 or even 90% of your calories. I'd like to know a little more about your diet and what you still have to purchase off-site. Ben, what say you on this one? It's, a, it's really a great question. Hi, Jack and all. Uh, ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Question from Shane uh, about my diet. Yeah, at times it's definitely been um, 80% or even 90% for sure during the summer um, and with a lot of meals even in the winter as well. Um, I think for the last year, year and a half, it's probably been less than that. My life has gotten quite busy on a lot of other fronts and we stopped keeping sheep. We kept sheep for three years and that really helped up that percentage a bit. Uh, but then I started picking up a lot of roadkill as well. So I don't know if you, you know, I don't know if I consider that, um, my own food, but I, I guess I would, although it might, it doesn't come from on my site. But in any event, it's probably less than 80 and 90% right now. Um, but I think anywhere, you know, in the last bunch of years, it's varied between 50 and 90%. Um, and, you know, my diet completely changes with the seasons. Um, I have a lot more meat and storage crops, of course, in the winter, um, eating from our root cellar, a little bit from the greenhouse and heavily from uh, as well from the deep freezer in the winter. So meat, potatoes, cabbage, kimchi, sauerkrauts, a lot of squash, which actually isn't in the root cellar or the freezer. We have like a cool room in the basement where all the alliums, garlic and onions are stored and squash. Those all want to be in the same place, basically. They don't want to be in a cold root cellar. They won't keep well. Um, and delicata is our favorite squash. Keeps pretty well, not quite as well as butternut or spaghetti, um, but I don't like those quite as much, although butternut is pretty good. Um, and even spaghetti, it really depends how you, how you prepare, prepare them. Um, 
So, yeah, I think my diet, um, I mean, I was eating totally organically before I started growing my own food when I could um, and a lot of local foods from farmers markets and things like that. But that's just still very low quality food compared to when it comes out of your own garden. It's fresher and you know what goes into it and you know your soils are better than, you know, your local organic farm even for sure. Um, we do a lot of remineralization and um I've just noticed also doing a lot less carbs over the last few years that um, I just feel better, have more energy, just less um, less kind of sludge. You know, I used to have some mucus. I'd have to blow my nose here and there um, during the winter, especially in the cold New England winters. Um, I just would be kind of, I have like a damp constitution from a Chinese medicinal standpoint. Um, and I used to have just a lot of like um, kind of uh, moisture in my body. That's all dried up much more now. And I'm much more, I think, um, more adapted to this climate. I don't have, my nose isn't stuffed unless I have a cold. And God, I really uh, haven't had a cold in years um pretty sure and i mean a lot of people i know still get colds and even flus and that hasn't happened and um i'm trying to think i mean i don't even think i've gotten a little bit of a cold in uh at least a few years and uh, a flu anything like that in i don't know i mean since i started gardening really um and and living on land um yeah, so I used to get colds and, and even every now and then maybe a flu here and there. I'm not I'm never someone who's gotten flus, but I used to get colds, you know, before I'd grow my own food for sure and be outside a lot and really active. That's just as important, I think, as the diet. But, I mean, there's there's many ways. This is a big question. I mean, uh, how I feel and, and kind of how my health is and, and vibrance is, is very different growing my own food. And, and the details of that are uh, I could talk about for a long time. But um, those are some of them. And, of course, um, seasonal eating is like everything, you know, huge, huge part of it. Um, it's also really important to um, point out the role of, like, medicine and like food as medicine and not just like eating fresh food and you know a lot of vegetables um and just good quality food but you know eating a lot of medicine so like having an appropriate amount of garlic having teas really often having mineralized teas things like nettles like consuming uh, adaptogens chaga Reishi are, are two big ones for us. Those are fungi we can find locally. Um, those really balance the immune system out. They're an immunoanphoteric. They actually like modulate the immune system because, because it's it's one thing to just like stimulate your immune system, but it's another to suppress it. But um, fungi like reishi and chaga, well, chaga especially, can actually modulate it and. and um, promote immune activity if needed or um, actually slow immune responses down if they're in hyperdrive, which can be often the case. That's like an autoimmune response, which a lot of us are dealing with um, more of the time than we might realize. Um, I mean, I'm married to a naturopathic doctor who's also done, um, you know, who's seen like hundreds and hundreds of patients 
um, and prescribed herbs and, and nutrition um, and food as medicine. Um, so she, she keeps me really healthy. I mean, she just has a very high degree of sensitivity to like what a body and a nervous system need. Um, so she's always kind of, you know, m- adapting what we're cooking and what we're eating and when we're eating and what we're drinking, what kinds of, of, you know, herbs and fungi and, um, sea berry and elderberry, especially, and also even supplements, you know, actually like vitamin supplements, um, which I used to not be very interested in, but I think are actually do have a really key role to play kind of when and how, how much of those we take. And, um, yeah, it's it's a noticeable difference in terms of how healthy we are and and how how rarely really or at all we get sick. Um, she'll still get a cold, like a light cold here and there. My body, I think, I just have a a stronger immune system um, and also strong digestion. You know, di- digestion's huge, and having a lot of ferments is big for that. A lot of people are are taxing themselves digestion wise, and so eating in a way uh, that really keeps your gut healthy and keeps your digestion very strong, you know, has a, has a huge ripple effect in the rest of health. Um, also lately we've been um, getting into intermittent fasting and actually just trying to go periods of time without eating. I, I'm good. I'm pretty naturally oriented towards that, but less so when I live with someone who's always cooking up really good food and wants to eat early, like in the morning, naturally I don't eat in the morning. And, uh, when I can follow that, I do much better. I have much more energy. Um, basically the less I eat, the better. Uh, I mean, that's true for most of us, but we eat not to consume calories, but we eat for a lot of other reasons, especially psychological. Um, and that, that, that's true for, I think basically anyone, um, and so, you know, I try to more and more as the years go on, actually not eat until 11 or 12 or 1 when I'm actually hungry, have just two meals a day um, and stop eating before I'm full. Obviously, that's really important. People have known that for a very long time. Um, there's whole words actually that are for just that in other cultures. Um, and that helps a lot. I mean, w- what you don't eat is as important as what you eat, you know, and how much you eat is as important as what you eat in a lot of ways. And when you eat and what you combine, you know, food combining is a lot of people aren't talking about that or paying attention to that, even if they're eating like really high quality stuff. That's really key because uh, that affects your digestion and digestion is the root of so much. So that's uh, getting a little off topic, but that's that's tied in and it's really important. So thanks for your question. Um, it's a, it's a good one. It's very important because this is all zone zero and our outer zones are only as good as our inner zones. Good stuff from Ben. And I I think that I've heard the same things from so many people. Um, more proteins, less grains feel better in the end. And it's, it's interesting that a lot of times when you, you start talking about more protein and less grain, people say, well, how are you supposed to be able to produce your own food? And I ask people, how much wheat do you grow in your backyard? And they look at you kind of funny and silly and sideways, and they don't really think about it. But it's actually pretty easy to produce meat. It's pretty easy to produce eggs. It's pretty easy to produce a lot of products from them. It's pretty easy to produce fungi. Uh, and it's pretty easy to, to forage for fungi. And chaga, of course, is a, a, a fungi 
that they're able to uh, forage for up there uh, in relative abundance, which is an amazing adaptogen. And uh, roadkill. Now, would I consider roadkill be from your own land? No, but I do consider it to be your own food. It's it's a, a resource that would go to waste otherwise. And I'm I'm the kind of person if I see a deer on the side of the road, um, I'm pulling over to check it out. And uh, some people think that's a little weird, but I mean, I, I, Ben and I are not picking up you know flattened squirrels and possums or anything like that. An animal that size that's hit. Uh, you know, you, the old Beverly Hillbilly's jokes or whatever, um, it, it's not usable. It's not usable. And usually when you find a deer um, that's been hit by a vehicle, there'll be some piece of it that it's extremely bloodshot, not really usable. But uh, I've got a story about a deer we picked up, me and a friend, when I was on leave from the Army that I'll save for another day. It's pretty funny. It involves a game warden, and this deer was hit in the springtime, and you can kind of take it from there. Uh, we had already skinned the deer, and I was coming out of a cellar with uh, with bloody parts. And I'll tell you the whole story later. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take the, the uh, next question. These questions are for uh, Jeff Lott. And the first question is basically, can you do uh, can you basically create swell effect by bringing fill in and creating berms instead of digging down because you're in a place where digging down is not practical, like where I live? Uh, and uh, the next question is also about doing swales or swell-like features or micro-swales um, to grow a plant like lavender on scale as a small business. So, Jeff, take it away since you uh, went and answered both of them in a single go. Jeff Lawton here coming to you from Australia. And uh, I have uh, two questions here. And um, the first one is from Scott. And he has a question about, is it just as effective to create a swell by bringing in soil to a piece of property as to dig it from the property itself? Um, well, we've often had to do that because we've brought in soil to go through established orchards and we don't want to take, make too much disturbance. It works absolutely fine, um, but it can be a little bit expensive. Um, you can take a bigger scratch from further back and make a wider, shallower swell if you're on flattish country. Um, if you've got poor topsoil, you often take off the topsoil first, push it uphill, form your swell, and then push the topsoil down. Um, you can deep rip first because they're all about infiltration so the looser you can make it in the trench and under the mound the better so i would still advise that you deep rip first and then bring in topsoil if that's what you're going to do but it all works absolutely fine they've also asked about ground covers um like daikon daikon's not a ground cover daikon radish is a is an individual plant but it's a deep rooted taproot and it becomes a compost corridor in the soil if you don't dig if you don't break it up or you don't harvest it um, alfalfa is a legume fixes nitrogen has deep roots has quite a water demand mustard uh, pretty hardy some mustards but really what breaks up clay is fast growing nitrogen fixing trees usually but fast growing pioneer trees that like the clay so you go for local endemic species or species from an area that uh, is a similar climate analogue 
um, but then renowned for growing well in poor clay soils because they'll really break up the subsoil because swales are tree-grown systems. That's what swales actually are. The definitive swale is a tree-grown system. And the plants you've listed here, daikon, radish, alfalfa and mustard, are not trees. They're herbaceous, non-woody plants. So um, you can put your ground covers down, of course. I grow for fast fast ground covers. The, the, the seasonal ground covers uh, give you the first run, some kind of ground cover pea or bean, and then establish a, a perennial ground cover after that. But all the time making sure that you have your trees in position and if it's poor soil and you can't put in productive trees to start with, pioneer the situation with fast-growing pioneer trees in a sequence that builds fertility towards the productive trees. And they're usually legumes or nitrogen-fixing trees. And in your case, you'd really like them um, to, to be very, very hardy in clay conditions by the sounds of it. Okay, now we have a second one from Joe. Now, Joe wants to start a lavender farm. It's only on a small acre area of two acres, uh, about 3,500 plants. He wants to know if you can use swales, or swale-type features they actually are, because they're just going to grow lavender. Um, the rainfall is about 40 inches. USDA zone 5B. It mostly falls between May and September. Um, anywhere between three and five inches per month, according to the data. And then the rainfall generally runs into a stream, into a stream and then into a pond. Uh, that can continue to happen. Um, and lavender can be grown on contour on little earth mounds that are swell-type features. And you want to keep the grass in between. You think, you're wondering whether that'll work okay and you want to mow the grass between the swells, which almost become like the swell trenches, um, and then plant the lavender up on the top of the mounds. With the other option, you can irrigate from the pond. Well, you're probably still going to have to irrigate from the pond, but you're going to find that with these little swell mound type features I keep saying that because it's not actually a swell it's a swell mound type feature it's a it's a an earth a, a, a soft uncompacted earth mound on contour um, positioned in succession across a two acre piece of ground um, to grow lavender so it's not exactly a swell but it's swell type functioning features um, but you will greatly reduce the water demand from the lavender. You might actually have no water demand from the lavender at all. The, if you regularly mow the intermound area with lawn, the, the, the area between the mounds, um, it'll keep the lawn nice and hard and compacted with shallow root zones, so there'll be a lot of runoff in between. You'll capture the <coughs> water into the mounds and reduce your water demand. You have to set an overflow up at one end or the other, or both ends, so that it doesn't flood too much. Um, and you can manage the amount of water infiltration by the height of the overflows at each end. And it should all work absolutely fine, I would say. All right, that's, um, that's me from over here in Australia, and look forward to talking to all you folks next time. See you later. 
Moving on, I have a question for uh, Gary Collins. Uh, this this question comes from uh, Monty in Iowa, and it's on intermittent fasting and having improvements due to that uh, with triglycerides, but being told he was pre-diabetic and having a rise in blood sugar levels. Uh, with that, Gary, hey, what can you tell us about this issue? This is an interesting one that I think a lot of people would want to know more about. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method, and we have a great question regarding elevated blood glucose levels after starting intermittent fasting for a couple months. Monty's been on the paleo diet for about a year and, again, been doing intermittent fasting for the last two months. I don't know how he's been doing paleo, so I'm not real sure uh, if that's part of it. I just don't know enough. Uh, there's many people who do the paleo diet wrong read the wrong person, wrong author who doesn't know what they're talking about, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing he's probably doing it right, but I just don't know. But with that, he wants to know if that should be a concern because he has found that other people after doing his research have the same issue. They have elevated uh, blood glucose levels while intermittent fasting. And he is correct with that. I've found that with clients as well. There are several reasons why that could occur. But first, let's let's explain intermittent fasting for those who don't know what it is. And basically, and this is how I teach it and how most people will do it, it's the 8-16 rule. So you have a window of eight hours where you eat your meals and then you fast for 16 hours. The best way and most common way is to skip breakfast and eat your first meal of the day around 11 o'clock in the morning, 12 o'clock afternoon. So late morning, early afternoon. And then you'll have your last meal around six or seven in the evening. Um, it'll vary. You're not going to hit it every exactly every time, but long as you're within that 16 or 14 to 18 hour window, that tends to be where it is, just depending what you're doing. So with that, with the reason people do that is intermittent fasting is is a way for you to to burn more body fat, to become a fat burner, get into that mode. I use it particularly for people who are trying to lose 5, 10, last 5, 10, 15 pounds. Very successful with it. And that's why I also don't recommend just jumping into it. Uh, you have to at least have the basics down. And I have a blog article on my website at www.primalpowermethod.com. Throw in uh, intermittent fasting and it will come up. And I also talk about it in my book, Change Your Body, Change Your Life. I'll try and squeeze it in and give you the the cliff notes version, but that's it. Because what happens is, and especially why I recommend doing it at night, is you won't eat. You won't have that tendency. You can't cheat when you're in your sleep. And, you know, when you're asleep, you're asleep. Even though I know Americans stay will get up and it seems like I can go to the refrigerator and you know eat eat something. But with that, what you're doing is while you're asleep, you're go going to burn through those that glucose, that free-flowing glucose, go through some of your glycogen, and then your body's going to kick into using fat as energy because you're 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 not you're not in motion. You don't need it. You know, you're not going out and running a sprint. So what you're doing is prolonging that, so it helps with fat loss. Now it sounds like that's what he's doing, but I'm not quite sure. I don't know what his intermittent fasting is, but he's only been doing it two months. That isn't actually all that long. To be fat adapted, depending where you're at, but it takes anywhere from 60 to 90 days. I don't know if he was fat adapted during the year when he was doing paleo. Or like I said, if he was doing it wrong, 
he will not fat adapt. He'll still be a sugar burner because remember, a paleo cupcake is still a cupcake. You know, a paleo, you know, muffin is still a muffin. You know, if you're adding even, you know, raw, you know, organic sugar, it's still sugar. Your body will process it as sugar. So with that, there are common reasons or, you know, most common reason I've experienced why people have elevated blood sugar. That is the main one is they're just not fat adapted yet. Their insulin levels are not stable. They're still insulin resistant, which means they still produce, have to produce a lot of insulin in order to drive down their blood glucose. And when you're insulin resistant, your blood glucose will tend to be high because again, your body has adapted. You know, you keep producing more insulin, but you're still eating the same amount of sugar, but it takes more and more insulin to try and drive that blood sugar down. So it's the blood sugar is going to start creeping up. Uh, that's one reason. Uh, some pharmaceutical drugs will cause it to be elevated. That's something you would have to discuss with your doctor. People who have are at great risk for uh, stroke, heart attack or who have had a stroke or heart attack. Uh, stress. Stress is a big one. Um, and stress, the reason is because it produces cortisol. Cortisol is a stress hormone. It's the, the hormone that wakes us up. So if you're getting your blood test early in the morning, like right after you wake up and you go down there right away and get it done, well, your cortisol levels are going to be real, uh, at almost the peak. So that could, cause what cortisol does is it releases glucose into the bloodstream to get you going. Like I said, otherwise we'd lay in bed all day and do nothing. Um, Cortisol works in opposition to melatonin. Melatonin is what puts us to sleep. So the later on the day you go, the more melatonin, less cortisol. So that could be it. And then throw in if you had caffeine, uh, say you had a cup of coffee, you know, before you went there or even, even before the blood, because it takes nine hours is the half-life of caffeine basically in your bloodstream. So even if you had it four hours before you went in and had your blood work, you would still have caffeine in your blood system bloodstream and with that raises cortisol levels that's what caffeine does and what cortisol does is it actually releases glucose so that could be it say you had a rough day rough morning and you know stressed out well stress raises cortisol there you go again that is probably one of the most common ones uh, and that's why i'm real iffy with blood tests because they're a snapshot at that time so the best way to when you have an issue or a marker that's high is come back like two weeks later and get it taken again just to see. I've had abnormal, you know, I've had abnormal blood screens as well like that. And it was nothing because it was just again that moment. It had nothing to do with long term health. It was just something that I did or happened within that time period to throw something off. Um, I've had elevated blood sugar before. I've had, uh, uh, high, Abnorm abnormally high cholesterol for my health and it it was due to numerous reasons so i would go in and get your blood monitored a little more closely i would do that anyway if it's up i would just do that just to be safe and and also another thing could be for some reason if you get your blood screening closer to the end of the fast and you go into a, a gluconeogenesis, which is converting protein and fat into glucose. Remember, we have all these energy systems moving in and out. Our body's always adapting to whatever stress or whatever function we have to do at that time. So if I have to go sprint, run down, you know, 
prey or run from or you know get an animal hunt or I'm running from prey, you know, someone trying to kill me. Well, guess what? I need that glucose because that's the quick burner. That's that's the jet fuel to get me going. When I'm not stressed and relaxed, well, I will I should automatically go into fat burning mode if I'm fat adapted and I'm living, you know, eating healthy, normal, primal lifestyle. So that could be it. So he may want to try and balance and figure out a different time to get the blood test, not too close to the end of the fast and not too close when he wakes up in the morning. Another reason could be that there's there's 5 to 10% of the population that has what we call dysfunctional blood glucose regulation. It, it's just kind of broken, and it's all over the board. It, there's no rhyme or reason uh, for some people. Some people, it's because their family is type 1, has a history of type 1 diabetes. That's another reason. It's a genetic factor. Uh, or they could be in that realm of type 2, which I, I would not guess he is. But that could be it. But for 5-10% of the population, there's just no rhyme or reason. It's There's no way, uh, no matter what they do, it just will not drop. It just will not get into that normal uh, number, which is around 80 fasting. That's where it should be. Um, but again, they don't – it's not that they're diabetic. It's not that they're pre-diabetic. It's just elevated. Um, those are the primary Reasons. So if I was him, I'd work on it a little bit longer. You remember that sugar addiction takes about 12 to 18 months to break. Uh, you know, your body, it just takes a while to adapt. You know, I, I preach to people, it's a two, three year kind of journey before everything kind of fixes itself and kind of gets to where, you know, it's into that homeostasis. It's kind of met that middle ground where it's kind of working correctly and you've corrected a lot of the issues. So if I was him, I would try that. And, and, and just see if it works. And, and if it doesn't, here's one thing I've found too. For some people, like I was telling you that five to 10%, the only thing that really helps is to spread out the meals and do the five to six meals every two to three hours during the day. Um, that it, he could try that if it doesn't go down and see if that helps. And if that actually drives it down, well, that's what he's going to have to do. There's just some people that they have to do that, and that's actually why I use that in the beginning with people who have been eating the standard American diet for you know, pretty much their whole life is I tell them to start with five to six meals a day every two, three hours because guess what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to stabilize their blood sugar. Otherwise, we're on this yo-yo all the time, You know, high blood sugar, crashing blood sugar, up, down. That's what it does all day on the standard American diet when we're eating all those processed carbohydrates and sugar. So – he may have to go back to that or start implementing that. I hope that helps, and I hope I didn't confuse you guys too much there. But if you have any questions, hit the comments section uh, in, in, uh, in Jack's uh, Expert Council uh, podcast there page. And uh, if you have, like I said, you can go on my blog and go read the intermittent fasting article if you're more interested or, or buy my book. Thanks a lot. I guess my my takeaway from this is that I would advise anybody who goes and gets lab work done or blood pressure tested or whatever and has a single incidence of something being elevated or low to not put too much stock in it, period. To have uh, that test reperformed at a later time, especially if there's no other symptoms or problems. If you told me you were intermittent fasting and then being shaky or sweaty or feeling nauseated or some other thing 
then I would be a lot more concerned personally if it was me than if, well, I, I feel fine, I feel great, but this, this test has the doctors worried. Because I told a story this week with you know my wife with her blood pressure being a little high and uh, at a time when she was concerned because another doctor made her concerned. And then when she ran to taking her own blood pressure over a period of two weeks, went back to the doctor with the readings, the doctor said, you're fine, there's nothing to worry about. But two weeks earlier, that doctor was ready to put her on a blood pressure medication that she would be on for the rest of her life. So th th this is my problem with modern medicine. Everything's done with a chart and, and, a, and a series of limits, and this is where it's supposed to be. Well, I don't personally believe the human body works that way. I think there's normals and averages and things, and there's certainly things that you would look at and go, that's way out of line, that's, that's a big cause of concern or what have you. Um, But I think that being able to take a single snapshot reading and, and then just tell somebody, oh, you're pre-diabetic, frankly, my response to that is bullshit. Maybe. I don't know. But to take a single reading, a single time, in a single instance, and make a determination like that is nonsensical. And, and that's my problem with modern medicine. And it's, it's not the doctor's fault. It's not the, the nurse's fault. It's the industry's fault for creating a system where you have these snapshot windows to be able to make a determination, give somebody a, an analysis, and go on to the next one. And it's destroying uh, the doctor-patient relationship. And so you have to take responsibility for yourself. So I'd advise you to possibly talk to somebody like uh, Dr. Stephen Lewis and get a full workup done on all of your readings and then uh, look at that from a nutritional standpoint with someone who will take more than five minutes to discuss it with you. That's just my thoughts. Anyway... Uh, and, of course, they're at doctorsnutrition.com, and I'll put a link to their, their site as well today. All right, let's go ahead and take uh, another one. This one is for Stephen Harris on uh, hand crank uh, charging and how, how much human energy goes into cranking a charger compared to a battery that you could just, you know, purchase. Uh, Steve, this will probably be a pretty interesting one. Take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in to answer your question. I got an email from a gentleman in Ireland. It says, Steve, have you seen the Power Traveler Crank Monkey? I got it because it's the only device I know that will output one amp at five volts, and it's waterproof, polarproof, freezeproof, shockproof. They take it to Mount Everest. They take it on polar expeditions. Yay! I think as Kermit the Frog would say. And uh, I looked at the videos and the specs, and I'm familiar with all crank-up devices, which is what I'm here to talk to you about today is human-powered devices that make electricity. This thing doesn't output 1 amp. It outputs 0.8 amps. So you'd be cranking on it for three hours in order to charge up your iPhone. Three hours of cranking on a device that weighs 1 kilogram, 2.2 pounds, and costs in excess of $160. It's no wonder they're out of business. It's anyways. Here's some of the here's the hard facts between uh, human power stuff. I get people who write to me and say, Steve, I want to take a bicycle and hook up to an alternator and use it to power my TV, my lights, my radio, and everything else. The facts are, any human powered device is basically a fool's errand, and it's simple physics behind this and and why the human body on an average eight to ten hour workday, like I say, you're shoveling dirt or rocks and moving stuff, uh, rocks and heavy stuff, lumber, timber, you know, a handsaw, a big handsaw like for cutting a tree. 
you can generate on the average one-tenth of a horsepower continually for eight to ten hours. That's the average power of a significant male human body that can work on an eight to ten-hour day. Uh, now, there are about 746 watts in a horsepower, 746 watt-hours in a horsepower hour. Now, what is a horsepower? A horsepower is lifting 550 pounds up one foot a second every second for 3,600 seconds in an hour. Listen to that again. 550 pounds up one foot in a second every second for an hour is horsepower. So if you are a... Uh, on a bicycle and you're powering an alternator and everything else, you're going to be doing one-tenth of a horsepower, so about 75 watts for an entire hour of human input. Going through the inefficiencies of an alternator and everything else, you're going to be generating about 50 watts by the time you get out of the alternator, probably closer to 35 to 40 watts, and that's not crap. Uh, 35, 50 watts for doing all that work on a bicycle for an hour to generate 35 to 50 watts to run a few LEDs and a radio and stuff. That is, well, you see why I call it a fool, fool's errand. Now, let's look at how much power there is in batteries as opposed to the power of the human body. If you took four D-cell, Duracell, alkaline batteries and you put them into a radio that uses four D-cell alkaline batteries, uh, one, most people don't realize this, but you can leave that radio on for about two months. Two months, 24 hours a day on low to moderate volume, and it'll play for two months. Yes, I have done it, people. Okay, I've literally had a radio sitting in my house playing on low 24 hours a day for two months. Now, four D-cell, Duracell, alkaline batteries are going to be about 15 ampere hours each times six volts is going to be about 90 watt hours. 90 watt hours. This is the energy in four batteries. Listen to this carefully. In four D-cell batteries is equal to 66 foot-pounds per second. That would mean you lifting 66 pounds off one foot of a ladder every second for 3,600 seconds an hour just to get the same amount of energy that's in four Duracell D-cell alkaline batteries. Now, what do you want to do? Have $6 worth of batteries? Or do you want to have $150 worth of crank-up power to equal that? When the crank-up power wouldn't even begin to equal that. So do you want to crank for, like... 50 hours, or do you want to have $6 worth of batteries? And if, if for other crank-up devices, the cheaper plastic ones you find on the market, you're going to be cranking those for 8 to 16 hours just to put energy into your iPhone to charge it up. 8 to 16 hours of cranking, okay, versus like getting a lime fuel 20,000 milliamp hour, 20 amp hour battery. The lime fuel battery that I have on uh, Prep1234, and actually it's on cell phone one two. 34.com now, it's 100 watt hours, so it'd be equal to like 75 pounds per second for 3,600 seconds in an hour to equal it. So even in the lime fuel batteries and the Duracell alkaline batteries, there is a tremendous amount of energy and tremendous amount of time saving and tremendous amount of effort saving in those batteries for the lime fuel battery costs like 20 bucks. Six, uh, four Duracell diesel batteries cost six bucks or less, especially if you get them from Costco or Sam's Club. 
these are is what I'm trying to teach you guys. And this is why I'm so heavy on recharging AA nickel metal hydride batteries from your from a battery bank in your house or your car battery or you know having extra gasoline for your car. My God, if I gave you the numbers of what one gallon of gasoline is equivalent to um oh hang on, let me I'm gonna do that calculation for you. Okay, I just did the calculation. Uh, one gallon of gasoline going through a gasoline generator at the low efficiencies of a gasoline generator, which is less than 25%. One gallon of gasoline that you're getting today for $2 in your generator is equivalent to you working very, very, very hard, like lifting dirt and rocks, for 122 hours. Divide that by eight hours a day. We're talking one gallon of gasoline is equivalent to you working hard for 15 days. That's the amount of energy in a gallon of gasoline. So imagine the amount of energy going in a gallon of gasoline, going into your car or going into a generator. It's going into your battery bank. That goes into your double A's. It goes into your flashlights. It goes into your radios. That goes into recharging your cell phone. Just imagine the tremendous amount of energy that is there. And that is why I get so excited about this stuff. And I want to teach it to you so much. It's because though it's so powerful it is your savior in a disaster to have energy under your own control so you can use it and know it and do it every day with unconscious competence do it by memory from rote and because you have to be able to do this stuff under stress when it's when you know we half your roof is gone the kids are screaming your wife's saying what are we going to be doing the rain is coming in you got to put a tarp over everything you're trying to you know it's dark so someone has to hold a flashlight this is the last time you want to it's the worst time you want to be worrying about energy it's like okay honey just turn the crank on the flashlight uh, okay, and I need some light while I'm putting the tarp over the roof. Okay, that, that, that's not going to work. So anyways, guys, those, those are some of the hard numbers on human-powered devices. Please, please listen to the stuff I teach you and how to power your house from your car, which is 100% free. And there I tell you how to recharge all of the double A's you could possibly want from your car. Please, please listen to that, okay? Uh, the stuff I have done with Jack on battery banks and everything, this is so powerful to you. And it's all for free at Stephen1234.com will lead you to everything. And if you want to know more in de- explicit detail by video with batteries, I just finished the bug out bag video and the cell phone powering video anytime, anywhere in the world at 100%. You can get to both of those through energy1234.com, but Stephen1234 leads to everything, so you can always go there. Anyways, guys, I got some great education for you. Please check it out. If you have any more questions on what I just spoke to you about, you got any more energy questions, email me, and I'll be more than thrilled to answer them for you. I answer every email I get. I either answer your question in person and just give you the quick answer because it's so simple, or like this one, I find a good reason from enough emails to bring you the whole thing to the Survival Podcast so you can all listen to it. Get your batteries, know how to use them, know how to, know how to charge them, and don't d- do the crank-up stuff. I got emails from multiple people after Hurricane Sandy saying, I bought a Red Cross uh, radio, solar-powered, crank-up, LED light, USB port, and uh, Hurricane Sandy came. I got it out of the box. They never even played with it. And I, I cranked it up, and within five minutes, it was broken. 
that is a typical story with crank up devices. Uh, they will fail you right when uh, you need them the most. Oh, oh, and I cover solar power in multiple ways in the uh, bug out and cell phone bag video I showed you. Yeah, I actually take solar panels and put them out in the clouds in the sunshine and show you how they work and they don't work. Thanks so much, guys. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye. I will tell you one thing that should do for you that's not really, I guess, the intent that Steve had is to drive home the absolute dependence of humanity today on fossil fuels. I, I think that, that that should really drive that home when you start thinking about, you know, forget about a gallon of gasoline. Um, I have a little bottle of flavoring in front of me right here, four ounces. The embodied energy, if I fill that bottle with gasoline, is is in, insane. How much work that gasoline can do. And you know me, I'm not the sky is falling, peak oil is here, we're all going to be dead tomorrow type. I, I'm really not. I think that's that whole sector is way overhyped, and I've been hearing that shit for, oh, 25 years now. Um, not exactly a spring chicken. <laughs> I, I'm not a winter chicken either, but I'm somewhere in midsummer, and uh, I've been around a while, and I'm telling you... Uh, the whole thing coming to an end, it just it, it isn't going to happen. But in in the near future, but humanity has absolutely a, a conundrum with billions of people on this planet that it is not going to go on forever. And we do need to start thinking about what does an energy descent look like, or or what space uh, space time continuum bending energy uh, replacement are we going to find? Um, Steve will be the first one to tell you solar and wind ain't going to do it it's not uh, we can do a lot with nuclear but only so much for so long so I think the way I look at this that's different than a lot of people in especially the permaculture space or the peak oil space or whatever is this energy is only going to be here for a short time in, in the abundance that it's in and if, if that's 200 years, just to go to the f way far side of what's possible, that's a short time. Because it's been with us about 100, about 100 years. So you're talking 300 years. You, you want to say that that's dramatic? Okay, 500. Let's say, and I think most people look at the thing and go, yeah, well, shit, we're going to have to do something in the next 500 years. Okay, this is my point. This is my point. If it's 500 years, human history is more than 10,000 years old, written history. I believe actual history of, of humans is in the neighborhood of a million years. The history of the world is measured in billions of years. 500 years, a mouse fart. And what then? And if it's 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, you might think, well, it's not my problem. Well, it may not be your problem, but it might be your responsibility. And I'm not talking about ride sharing and, you know, learning to do ghost driving or whatever to save energy or whatever, or save polar bears. I'm talking about when you do use energy, doing things with it that will outlast you. I think that if, if, if we actually give a shit about future generations, it's not so much about, you know, let's, let, let's all get on a, a, a bus together that burns hydrogen as a, a stupid gimmick and more about what can we be using this energy for to create permanence uh, of sustainability and permanence of regenerativeness. That's just my thought. Anyway, coming up to the next one, this question is for John Pugliano, and it's on 
owner financing. What are the benefits and pitfalls of owner financing a property, specifically in this case, a property that does not have a home on it, it's just land? John, what say Hello, you? Hello, Mark. Thanks for your question about uh, the benefits and pitfalls of owner financing on a property. I'm a big fan of cutting out the middleman and looking for ways to get around traditional institutions like banking and finance and things like that. And if you've heard Jack and I talk about technology, you know that we both believe that someday something like the blockchain is going to be used very effectively and inexpensively to track government documents, bill of sales, land purchase agreements, property financing, all these type of things. And I think when that occurs, it's going to make things like owner financing of real estate very attractive. However, having said that, I don't think that day has come yet. And so I'm not really a big fan of owner financing of property and real estate, except in two situations. So I will get to your question of answering the benefits and pitfalls, but I want to give you my biased, prejudiced opinion first. So where I think it works best is when it's between two parties that have undeniable trust. So usually this would involve a family-type transaction. For example, a grandfather that wants to keep some real estate or some property in the family, and so perhaps he has an adult grandson or granddaughter that would like to own that property, but for whatever reason couldn't go to the bank and finance that loan, or just to save money on transaction costs and the variety of fees that you do encounter with a traditional loan, uh, they choose to have owner financing. So in this example, the grandfather trusts his grandchild to make good on the monthly payments and take care of the property and the house, the real estate, whatever is involved. And then likewise, the grandchildren know that their grandfather isn't going to defraud them. And they're also very familiar with the property because more than likely they grew up either in it or around it. So they know the property boundaries are legitimate. They know the house or the buildings are in good repair. They know it has a clean title, all those type of things. There's no issue of fraud or deceit on either person's part. That's where I think owner financing works best. And the reason for that is because it does cut out the bank as a middleman. It would allow, in this example, the grandfather to receive a higher interest rate payment than he's most likely going to get from a savings account or a CD or, or some type of bond. It keeps the property in the family. And then it also eliminates most or all of the normal fees that would go along with traditional financing. In my opinion, I think that's the best use for owner financing of property or real estate. The second best option is a compromise situation where the reason you're seeking out owner financing is because you either can't receive traditional financing or the costs of that mortgage are prohibitively expensive. So an example of where the property of the real estate couldn't receive traditional bank financing would be like a uh, off-grid homestead that's relying on solar power and the structure is perhaps like an earth house or a geodesic dome or something that's considered out of the ordinary of normal residential building. In a case like that, I think owner financing would be appropriate. And then, of course, as someone that would be purchasing that property and that real estate, you want to make sure that you are getting good value for your dollar. Hire someone to do the home inspection perhaps an engineer to check the structure of the building, you know, all those kind of things, just to make sure that you're actually purchasing what you think you are. Ultimately, that's why banks don't want to finance those type of properties is because they're not familiar with them. They don't know what they're getting into. It isn't that they hate alternative uh, building structures. 
It's just they're looking for things, you know, that fit into a perfect cookie cutter mold because it's easier for the bank and, and they take less risk that way. So that would be an example where I would like and would most likely use owner financing of a property. Now, probably the most likely reason that someone would own or finance is because the purchaser doesn't qualify for a traditional bank loan, either because of poor credit history or, or credit risk or past bankruptcies, things of that nature. And that takes us to why I really don't like owner financing. In an owner financing situation where the, the buyer or the person that's seeking the loan, where they come in a compromised position because they can't qualify for a traditional lending method, that puts a great deal of burden on the person that's selling the real estate and doing the owner financing. And because they're accepting that higher level of risk, they're going to charge more for it. And they're going to do that in the form of asking to be paid an interest rate that's above the current market going price and or they're also going to ask for a higher selling price than the property's really worth. You know, if someone's underwater in their house, they want to sell it and get rid of it at as high of a price as they can as quickly as they can. And so they put it on the market and it doesn't sell. They reduce the price as low as they feel they can go and then they sit there on it. And when they can't sell it through traditional methods, they offer the owner financing as an incentive to a buyer that maybe normally couldn't qualify for a loan. But in effect, what they're really doing is selling that property or that house at a higher than market price. And so one of the pitfalls to the purchaser of an owner-financed property is to make sure that you're getting a good value for what you're buying, both in forms of the interest rates you're paying and then also the principal value of the purchase. The main area where I think purchasers get in trouble when they're buying an owner-financed property is that because they are trying to save money, they avoid the normal extra services that are required with a traditional mortgage. So maybe things like a survey of the land, a home inspection, or a structural engineering evaluation of the building, or they forego getting the legal documents prepared by and reviewed by a competent real estate attorney. You know, perhaps they don't get a title search or buy title insurance because when you're doing owner financing, none of that's required. And again, people think they're saving money by avoiding those steps, but it's really going to cost you more in the long run if you buy a property that doesn't have a clean title or where you find yourself in a dispute with your neighbors over the property line. So I'd encourage you to definitely do your homework and don't try and cut corners when it comes to using professional services that are going to be able to validate and authenticate what you're actually purchasing. The other downfall, I think, in owner financing from the purchaser standpoint is that you want to avoid fraud. So, for example, if the person that's selling the property to you, if they don't have a clear title or if they're not the 100% owner of that property, you're putting yourself in a risky situation where, you know, maybe you make your payments on time over a period of 10 years and then you find out that they never fully owned the property or they stopped making payments on the mortgage that they held against the property. And sometimes these problems crop up and initially they didn't start out to deceive or to defraud you, but maybe the person has a personal tragedy and they have to file bankruptcy or they get a divorce or, you know, some other problem comes up and it puts that property in jeopardy. Those are headaches that you avoid if you go with traditional financing. And so for now, until things like the blockchain technology get better, I think you're better going with traditional financing methods other than if you're buying this from a very trusted source like we talked about, maybe a family member 
or if you're buying a property that you know clearly has good value, but maybe because it's an alternative structure, the bank won't give a loan on that. Now, you specifically mentioned in your example that you're looking at buying some property that might have, you know, a a shed or a small house or something. And so I would think in that kind of a situation, the land or the property itself is really going to be where the value is and consequently what the bank would loan you against. And so, again, my bias for going to a traditional lender is that if they don't think that that property is being sold to you for fair value, they're not going to give you the loan. And so unless you consider yourself a really savvy real estate investor, I think in most cases you're better off acknowledging that the bank probably knows a little bit more about the value of that real estate than you do. So if the bank doesn't feel comfortable that the real estate is valuable enough to offset the value of the money that I'm borrowing from them, then I'm going to err on the side of caution and assume that the seller is asking too high of a price for that property. Mark, the last thing I'd caution you on, the biggest stumbling block I see that people make in real estate purchases, whether it's done through conventional methods or owner financing methods, is that they overextend themselves. They buy way more of a house or way more property than not only they need, but really that they can afford. So before you enter into any type of real estate transaction, I would encourage you to make sure that you're not biting off more than you can chew. And the best way to do that is to not just look at the monthly payment on this property or what the mortgage is or anything like that, but it's really to look at your total debt-to-income ratio. I personally think that you should keep that under 30%. I think the industry standard is probably something more like under 40%. But you did mention that this would be used as a bug-out location or a vacation or a secondary home. So whatever you do, make sure you can afford it. So, hey, Mark, I hope that answers your question. If you'd like to learn more about my thoughts on wealth building principles or my commentary on the stock market, make sure you check out the Wealth Setting Podcast. Thanks again for your question. For the expert counsel, this is John Pagliano of Investable Wealth. I think it actually may be the case in this particular situation that it is a difficulty acquiring bank, bank financing because the property is just dirt. There's no structure. There's no house. It's not something a, a bank will usually mortgage. But you got to be careful, and, and that's always my biggest concern. Is you know clear title, um, actual claim to the land, uh, no liens against the property. Banks are really good about making sure that those things are are not you know out of whack. So a lot of times with owner financing, it you know well I have the deed or whatever and I'm subdividing it. Well, do you have the authority to subdivide? You know, I mean, there there's all kinds of things to worry about. I'm not saying not to do it. I'm saying be very very careful. Uh, next question here is for Michael Jordan, and it's basically a question about you know, can, you, can you can you have bees and just like basically put bees on your property and let them act like feral bees, is, or is there any danger if you have feral bees around your property and you bring you know managed bees on the property? So, uh, Michael, can you take this one for us? This is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer from a Bee Friendly Company here, taking your questions on beekeeping, apiary management, and meads. I have a question from Scott on keeping bees without keeping them. Scott is asking, if I'm a backyard beekeeper and I don't necessarily need or want to take their honey for the first year, could I raise bees to let them do their thing naturally, including raising their own queens, swarming, and basically being feral bees so that to help strengthen feral populations in the area? As a soon-to-be beekeeper, I did not understand the level to which you must manage bees. We have a nest of feral bees in a cedar tree on our property, 
and I hate to bring in manageable bees in fear that they will contaminate the feral colony and kill it. With this disease of commercial hives, uh, am I native on both accounts? So, Scott, let's be clear. If you're not managing a hive, you're not keeping them, so you're not a beekeeper. Uh, I'm not saying that's bad or anything. Uh, now, to have a hive and to let it go is common with a lot of beekeepers. They start out strong, and in three years, it's not what they envisioned. So, yes, you can put a hive out, uh, place bees in it, and not manage it. And they'll swarm, they'll make queens, and they'll do all kinds of stuff. But they do pick up pests. Uh, um, they will go up and down, uh, sometimes in colonies. Sometimes you're going to lose that. You'll never know. And then another bees come in, and they you'll never really know what you're keeping. It might be just like that feral hive in the tree. They may be there sometimes. Sometimes they're not. It depends on population growth. Bees will even leave. They're tricky little girls. Um, so there are many types of bees, and some bees are very communal, like Italian bees. Uh, they drift from hive to hive with pollen and honey and nectar uh, to become part of other hives. Uh, the beekeeper's joke is their, their French way of uh, getting along is just to uh, succumb to what's happening. So Italian bees are more uh, communal. Uh, you know, other bees will fight to the death for their hive, like Russian or Africanized bees. Feral bees are the best bees and are very strong and do very well. So I think the bees in your tree are very well. And I, I don't think that you're going to have to worry about them uh, accepting anything. Feral bees have to be strong to make it, and they fight off everything that's out there. And they're mutts. They might have came from a beekeeper that was a commercial beekeeper, and they swarmed out, and now they've bred with other bees that are local, and they're mutts, or it was a feral hive from somewhere else that just swarmed, and they're, they're a mutt bee. So they, they have to make it. But, uh, but if they came from another hive and they've been in there, you don't know if they're sick or not, and they're just fighting off what they have. Um, like I said, they'll breed with any kind of drone in the local area. So I wouldn't worry about too much of the bees interfering with what you have in your tree. Now, if you plan on keeping the bees in the trees, don't mess with them. <laughs> if you want to invest in a hive and put bees in there and just leave it there, I think you're wasting your money. Um, I do love that you're wanting to keep the bees for bee population and letting them go swarm. Super cool of you. So let's go ahead and stick with that mess. Now, if your bees are sick and you just let them go because you don't want to manage them, you're liable for other beekeepers that are around you. And let's face it, some people are just plain ass jerks. And we know the jerks that are out there that have sick beehives. And they look for people that are like you that don't have registered hives, not keeping their hives, or not attending them. So then they go to their local uh, places and say, hey, my hives are sick because of so-and-so. And then you're liable for them. There are jerks out there. So here's the plan, man. You want bees, and you just want them. So here's what I would do, and this is a super cheap, cool way. So what you're going to do is you're going to get a piece of 3-inch PVC pipe 10 inches long. You're going to put a cap on both ends. Don't glue them yet. On one end that has the cap on it, drill a 3-quarter inch hole in the center of the cap. And then what you're going to do is you're going to take a 5-gallon bucket lid, and you're going to cut a 3-inch hole in that lid, and you're going to slide that PVC pipe through the lid, and place that cap on it that has the three-quarter inch hole on it, pushing it right against the lid. So the cap at bottom of the is on the lid, and you're gonna JB weld that there. 
And then below that lid that you JB welded underneath that cap that has the three-quarter inch hole in it, hopefully this makes sense that you have a 10-foot long piece of PVC pipe that you've slid a bucket lid on. And then you've kind of JB welded it to a cap that has a three-quarter inch hole in it. Just below that lid, you're going to drill two half-inch holes on each side of that PVC pipe. You're going to put the end cap on the other end and dig a two to three foot hole cementing the PVC up in the air. What you've got now is a 10 foot tall and if you put it in the ground right you're sitting at about eight foot now and what it is is this eight foot tall PVC pipe with a bucket lid and two holes underneath the bucket lid. So if you take your bucket and climb up your ladder and set it on top and fasten it to your lid you have a 10 foot tall pipe with a bucket in the air. What happens is you can put bees in there, lemongrass oil in there, and you have just made what they call a super swarm trap. You can place two or three of these around that tree you have with some lemongrass oil in it. The bees will go in the little half inch holes climbing in the pipe, going up the pipe through the three quarter inch hole and into the bucket. The bucket now is like an old skeep. Not woven grass, but a PVC bucket, five gallon. Just like a skeet. You put a little wax on the bottom of the bucket, so when you flip it over, the bees go in the half inch holes, in the pipe up through the three quarter hole, and into the bucket, creating a trap. The bees now can come in and out of the bucket as they need to grow and to work, and this just makes it easier for you. Remember, you said you didn't want to care for them or take care of them, so all you should do is put a ladder, pop the bucket off, look to see if you've got bees. You're not going to be able to inspect each frame because there isn't any. You're not going to be able to inspect comb because you're not any, but you're going to be able to see growth. The thing is, is that you're going to be able to trap bees this way for free. The other thing is if you buy packaged bees or something and you put them in here, you're going to be able to keep them without manage them and you're not looking for anything more. So you can do this little cheap trick of putting the bees up in there and letting them go. I would just always make sure that you know, you know, what happened, you know, they're going to swarm out of there, so you're going to make more bees, and you're going to catch swarms in some of them. So I think it's a good deal all the way around, but you should always check them in the spring to make sure you don't have any problems for other keepers. Check them to see if they have any mites. You might want to go ahead and dump some bees out a little bit, grind them up at your local extension office, see if they have trach. Um, just look to see what they look like on the inside to make sure they're doing good. And then in the wintertime, make sure you wrap the bucket. You know, three or four wraps of uh, roofing felt makes it almost like tree bark, and you can probably leave it like that around the bucket because you're not messing with them. People usually take the winterization off of them so they can work the beehive. So you've made this PVC swarm trap that you're going to keep your bees in now without keeping bees. Um, it's kind of like having barn kitties. You know, all you have to do is make sure the dish of food is full every other day and barn kitties do what barn kitties do. Just make sure the bees have food every once in a while and bees will do what they need to do. They may not stay. They may stay. You may catch some. You may lose some. Bees are tricky. But if you're not managing them, I think this is the best way to do it. So thanks, Scott, for trying to get more good bees out in the population. And on this note, it does not make you a keeper, but it does make you a habitat provider. And I thank you for that. I just want to throw in one quick note from John Glantz from Ohio on smoking his bees. I just wanted to tell you as a TSP listener, and you're listening to this, smoking the bees is done to train the bees to do what you want them to do. 
Uh, smoke's been around for a long time, and beekeepers are starting to learn that you train your bees more than just keeping them. Um, I use sagebrush and types of incense in my smokers and working with my bees. So my bees are trained to work with the, that type of smoke and that type of working that I do. Jason Smith, who works with Jack's bees, he smokes those bees. He works with them. I went to Jack's. I used incense and sage. It did push the bees around, but it made a marker because they weren't used to that smell of smoke that I was using. Jack can tell you the bees didn't like me. They didn't mess with me, but they flew around everywhere because I smelled like that incense that I used before. It was like when I tell people, spray your bee suit with really cheap cologne from the dollar store when you harvest honey. Go out there with a fresh bee suit the next time. They know the good beekeeper, the one that stinks like crappy cologne, is the stealer of our honey. Train your bees. So on that note, yes, he asked the question, can I use vapors and oils to smoke? Yes, you can. Just make sure that you're not gassing the bees with oils that can kill them. Some are harmful for bees like peppermint. Hey, thank you for your time tonight. Look for me at PermaU in Cheyenne, Wyoming, working with some high school students trying to educate people on survival tactics and permaculture. And I'm teaching bees at the University of Wyoming's Bee College this year on alternative medications in a hive. I am the Bee Whisperer, telling you to get your honey from a keeper you respect. Buy from Cottage Industries because we all have to start someplace and help your fellow man. For one day, you may need help too. Yeah, I told the story on a previous show, but Michael pissed off the bees right before we started um, uh, working with the uh, the quail. And uh, they, were, they were pretty upset. There was this one bee that ended up flying into my mouth, and I caught her between my uh, my lips and spit her out. It gets stung. Um But yeah, we use just a basic smoke uh, for our bees here, and they do, you know, respond quite well to it. And we don't really smoke them that heavy. It's only when they're necessary when we're moving them to do certain things. Um, so it, I, I'm really fortunate to have Jason taking care of my bees. I'll, I'll just put it to you that way. I'm no bee expert. Um, next up, I have a question for Darby Simpson on selecting a, a fence charger. And I'll let Dorothy, uh, Darby expand on Dorothy. <laughs> I'll let Dar Dar Darby expand on the details as he sees fit. But he's basically being asked, like Clinton, should I piece together a fence charger, battery, and solar panel, or should I buy a unit with everything built in? Uh, Darby, what say you on this? Because I know there's a lot of folks out there managing livestock one way or another, and either using uh, electro fence, electro net, et cetera, to keep them in, or using uh, excluding uh, fencing to keep predators out. Darby, what say you on this? Hello, Jack. This is Darby Simpson calling in to answer a TSP Expert Council question this week for Clinton, who is located in Ohio. Uh, Clinton's question revolves around what kind of fence charger he should be purchasing to use on his three-acre property. Uh, what Clinton's looking at doing is buying a, a couple of sections of portable fence from Premier Fence Company and keeping sheep and rotationally grazing them. And he has, uh, you know, sent me some uh, items he's looking at purchasing to go with this uh, portable netting. And the way uh, Clinton sees it, he has two options, uh, you know, to go with here. Uh, the first option is to, to buy a complete fence energizer um, that's just a standalone unit. It's already put together. He just takes it out of the box, sets it up, and begins using it. Uh, his other option 
He's wanting to know if he should buy the actual fence charger and a separate deep cycle battery along with a 20 amp solar panel with a regulator. Um, Clinton, uh, I've bought a lot of stuff from Premier Fence Company and I, I gotta tell you, uh, personally I like having the, uh, the unit that's already assembled and is one piece that you take out of the box, you get it charged up in the sunlight and it's ready to rock and roll. Um, now, with that said, I took a look at the IntelliShock PRS-I50 fence energizer um, that you sent in your, your email, um, and I think they've got that listed at like $310. Bucks. Um, personally, I, I don't really care for those small 0.5 joule energizers, uh, particularly uh, when you've got this heavy netting that's got a lot of electrified horizontal strands in it. Um, the, uh, portable fence charger that I like from Premier, and trust me, I've tried a bunch of them, uh, not just from Premier, but from other companies as well. Uh, what I like is the PRS 100. Now it's, it's about $30 more. It's about 340 bucks. Um, but I just, it, they're so well built. They're so well put together. I just don't see how you can possibly go wrong. Uh, about the only thing that can fail uh, with that PRS 100 energizer, uh, is the battery. You should probably plan on replacing that battery every couple of years. Uh, from a maintenance standpoint, you definitely want to keep that charged up in the winter, even if you're not using it, uh, letting it, uh, get run all the way down and leaving it dead for an extended period of time, um, will cause it to go bad faster. Uh, if you don't want to keep it charged up inside uh, the house, you can simply just lean that up against the uh, the south side of your house and, and let it let it stay energized in the winter. Uh, I, I've got three or four of those that we've used here over the years. Currently, I'm not using any because I've, I've got a hardwired fence charger, but uh, I've got a couple of those I'm going to be dusting off this summer and uh, rehabilitating them, so to speak, so that we've got a backup in case the power goes out with thunderstorms in the summer. Uh, the reviews uh, for that, that PRS 100 on Premier's website are just outstanding. It's got five stars. If I were to go out there and rate it, I would rate it five stars as well. It is a uh, you know an extra 30 bucks uh, or whatever um, over this, this first option that you listed here, uh, the PRS I-50. But just looking at the construction of the two, there's no way I'd... I'd I'd buy that 50. And again, you're getting double the jewel output or more from the PRS 100. So that would be my suggestion, Clinton, uh, to go with that unit. I don't think you're going to be unhappy with it at all. And I know it's going to do a good job keeping uh, sheep in that portable electric netting because I have personally used it for that very purpose here on our farm. So Clinton, I hope this answers the uh, question for you. Thanks for sending in the question. Guys, if, you, if you've got more questions about anything to do with livestock, including uh, poultry, pork, beef, uh, particularly from a production for-profit uh, standpoint, please send them in to uh, Jack, and he'll kick them on over to me. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can go out to my website at DarbySimpson.com. There are numerous blog articles on all kinds of things out there pertaining to not only production, but also things like uh, marketing and business planning and legal protection, all kinds of articles you can read currently in the uh, middle of a series right now on how to select a good farmer's market. And if you read between the lines, how to stay away from a bad farmer's market, because farmer's markets take lots and lots of time and energy and you don't want to pick a bad one. Uh, along with that, um, for any of you guys who might be headed out to California 
in early March to attend Permaculture Voices 3. I'll actually be presenting a three-hour workshop, uh, I think, on Friday, March 5th, if I'm correct. And that three hours is going to be spent on marketing, business planning, cash flow management, um, insurance, legal protection, all kinds of stuff uh, that I've, you know, talk about in my, my consults and my blog articles. I would encourage you, if you're on the fence about going to PV3, uh, to really think strongly about going. If you look at the lineup, this is really angled strongly at how to make money in the region ag slash permaculture space and, uh, you know, be profitable uh, so that you can keep on farming and, and keep on regenerating our lands. So anyway, if you've got any questions about that, please feel free to shoot me an email. You can check out the schedule, and uh, uh, there's a, a link there on the Permaculture Voices website that will give you more details about everything I'll be covering during my workshop. As always, Jack, thanks a bunch for kicking this over to me. Hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Take care. So another call out to consider coming to Permaculture Voices 3. You'll meet me, you'll meet Darby. And I mean, I'll point out that unless you come here to one of my workshops, uh, I don't exactly do a lot of public appearances or, or things like that anymore. I, there was a time when I you know, went to Self-Reliance Expo and did a lot of other places and, and was all over the place. And I've really cut that back in an effort to do a better job of doing this show instead of being gone all the time. There may be something going on in September. We're, we're working on something that may be kind of cool in September in, in Colorado But uh, for now, California is the place to be, and uh, there's worse places to be than California that time of year. Uh, you know, March is kind of cold across the rest of the country. It's pretty beautiful in the San Diego area, and we'd love to see you out there. On that note, though, I want to finish up with an idea I have for something right here at Nine Mile Farm TSP Ranch uh, as a survival podcast event. It would be a one-day thing. It would be like you come in the morning, hang out all day, go home in the evening. Uh, I might make allowances for people that come from out of town put a couple people up, but it would kind of be like, okay, event's over, there's a room upstairs with your name on it, go away, and I'll and, and leave before I wake up, that kind of thing. Because um, people do drive in for the one-day Work With Jack weekends and all. This really wouldn't be a Work With Jack, though. This would be kind of a mead fest, a spring mead fest. And uh, this, because I, I, Jason, uh, my bee guy, got with me and said, hey, you know, there's places you can get this orange blossom honey for a lot less than you're paying on Amazon, buying it in like 60-pound buckets. And I was like, yeah, you know, orange blossom honey from, from Dutch, Dutch gold for three bucks and change a pound. That's pretty damn good. I mean, Jason sells his cotton honey for six dollars a pound locally. So I mean, that's, and this is good quality honey. I've, I've made a couple batches of mead with it, but more importantly, I've tasted it. It's pretty fantastic. And there's some other sources of bulk honey available to us. And he said, well, you know, maybe you consider dentist. I'm like, well, if I get 60 pounds of honey, that's a lot of mead. And uh, I don't know, I mean, I'm making a, a couple, three gallons a week right now, and I'm going to make at least a gallon a week through the year. But, you know, within a month, I've got a bucket of crystallized honey. So I was thinking, well, I can get them in the five-pound uh, jars for a little bit less or a little bit more, but it's still significantly less than the other way. And I might do that for myself because uh, a five-pound five uh, honey uh, jug, if it starts to get crystallized, Well, when you're making mead, you just heat up some water and stick the jug in there, and it dissolves, and you can keep doing that until you get it to consistency where it'll flow, and then you can dissolve it in, and it's not a huge deal. But uh, if you've used 30 pounds of, of 60, and you got 30 pounds of honey crystallized in a bucket, it, it's it's a significant issue to deal with. And he said, well, you know, you could split it with some other people, or I, you know, maybe he'd go in with me because he's great honey, but it is mostly cotton honey, and, you know, 
orange blossom honey is some good stuff, and so is uh, clover and some other options that are out there with bulk honey. And as we were trading emails, I said, you know, what if we were to make a whole bunch of mead on one day? What if we got 20 people together and everybody made five gallons of mead and took it home with them? And you know, I'm going through all these experimental meads. I'm doing an apple ginger right now. It seems pretty fantastic. The Three Flowers Blend, a lot of stuff I'm sharing with my Meads of the Week uh, videos. Um, it'll be on Meads of the Week this week and should have that up probably Saturday evening or Sunday evening. I'll put up the next episode three of Meads of the Week on YouTube is a kiwi peppermint. A kiwi peppermint with a little bit of orange added to it. It's probably going to be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic because when I tasted just the must, it was like, wow, that should, should ferment out really well. So I would pick like five meads to make. Everybody would come over. I'm sure some mead would be drunk. We'd uh, have a barter blanket and just hang out and just do a day of mead making. And I would provide all the fruit, the herbs, the spices, the flowers, the honey. And, of course, there would be a cost for this. And it, this would not be like a $15 thing. Because um, if you're leaving with five gallons of meat, I mean, with the honey and all, we're probably looking at like, I'm guessing right now, I haven't run the numbers, like 200 bucks a piece. Now, if a couple came, it would just be 200 bucks for the couple as long as you're making, you know, five gallons. So it's really about covering the cost and then us making some money for hosting the thing for a day. But I think it'd be a hell of a lot of fun, and I think we could learn a lot and, you know, bring stuff to try and all. And I, my only issue is, obviously, this would be something where people would want to taste meads and drink and share home brews and ciders and stuff like that. And um, so with drinking and not doing it as an overnighter, I'm, I'm not sure exactly how we would do that yet. Maybe it makes more sense to do it as a, you know, a one-night campout over event, though those are a little bit more strenuous for us to do. But, I mean, it could be done. It's not that big of a deal. Um, but I, I'm just wondering who'd be interested in it. You know, we would we would get a couple bales of, pails of honey and uh, all the stuff lined up and everybody just come out and, you know, probably start about... There's no, It doesn't take that long to make the stuff. I've got a seven-gallon brew kettle to heat up water. We wouldn't obviously be doing this as a coffee pot mead thing, but it's got a... A spigot on the bottom where once we get water to one about 160, we can just take water out of it as we need, and we can just keep adding water and bringing it back up to temperature. So it wouldn't be a lot of work. It would be just more of a hangout, make mead, and everybody leave with five gallons uh, to ferment out yourself and bottle out yourself. And I'm kind of thinking it could become an annual event, and with people bringing back you know a little bit of what they made in the next year if they're returning uh, alumni, so to speak. Uh, I can't see turning it into a three-day event, and I kind of don't want to make it part of a three-day major workshop because I kind of like it to be its own thing, but it seems like something that would be a hell of a lot of fun and uh, a lot of learning as well. And I think you know mead making is, is really a, a craft. And in art, it's not hard, but there's certain things that you get better at as you go. And I think there's a lot of experimentation left to do with, you know, what can you make? I'm, I, I'm trying to figure out what else I'm going to make. I want to make probably another mead either tonight or tomorrow for the next episode to go along with the kiwi peppermint. I've got some cool vanilla and cinnamon coming to me uh, through the mail from Amazon, but uh, I'm thinking maybe run down to Costco this weekend and pick up a couple cups of pomegranate berries and do a pomegranate mead for that and talk to you about that. There's, it, it's really unlimited 
what you can do and the ideas and combinations that you can come up with. I'm sitting here looking at like nine gallons fermenting in front of me right now. Some of it's starting to clear. And uh, I think it'd be a lot of fun. And I, well, I'm just kind of spitballing it here. Just tell me if you'd be interested in coming to that. Uh, and if you're local or if you'd be driving in so I kind of know what I'm looking at. And figure on it costing 200 bucks, but also figure on leaving with five gallons of mead. Uh, now, taking it to the low side from a gallon, because you have some losses with your lees and your racking and stuff, you get four bottles of, of mead, finished full wine bottle size bottles, depending on how what you bottle it in. Um, so when you look at five, you're looking at 20 bottles of mead. If you paid 20 bucks a bottle, which is a pretty much a going rate for most decent meads in a, in a grocery store, it would be 400 bucks. So uh, I know you could make it at home. I've given you all the information you need to make it at home, but this would be a way that we could do it. We'll have food and, and stuff. So just wondering if you'd be interested, let me know in the, uh, the notes, or you can email me about it. If you email me about it, put uh, TSPC Mead Fest in the uh, subject line. And if you, uh, if you uh, want to, you can just do it as a comment on the blog, and I'll see it for episode 1725. Hope you enjoyed today's show. All the uh, amazing contributions by expert council members. Remember, if you want to ask a question of an expert council member, put TSPC expert in the subject line, send your question, and tell me what expert council member you want me to send it to, and I'll do my best to get your question answered. With that, I'm going to sign off. It is the end of another week. It has been a Friday, Friday, Friday. Uh, if you want to just a feel good today and you haven't seen it, uh, get by my YouTube channel. I, the, the ducks escaped into the West Pasture today and they found the pond and it was like rejoice. It was, it was really cool standing out there in the cold watching them just go berserk because they've had, you know, they've had their pools and their tanks and they've had the swales be full and they can swim up and down those, but to have actually open water, uh, you know, three, four foot deep to, uh, to plunge down in, they kind of had a, a big celebration, like, this is what it's, it's real, it does exist, that type of thing. So you might want to check that out. I'll put a link in the show notes. Closing song today is not one with any kind of real big giant message in it, though there's definitely poetic message in it if, if, if you want to look for it. I'll leave it to you to do that today. I just think it's one of the prettiest songs I've ever heard. It's it's uh, someone I have played before, Warren Zevin. Um, but it's one of his lesser-known songs. It really is, and uh, it, it shouldn't be. And I think when you uh, when you'll when you hear it, you you might understand why. And uh, I'm not real active in my home forum, the the Survival Podcast forum. I, I really was when we we founded it, but I've kind of turned it over to the moderators and let it become just its own community and not tried to control everything. I talk about that all the time. But if you if you look up a post by me on the Survival Podcast Forum, you'll see that this song isn't anything I've newly discovered or anything like that. Um, actually, this was a, I used to lift a lot of weights when I was in high school, and I used to listen to an album that had this song on it uh, when I was doing that. This wasn't the best uh, weightlifting song, but whenever it came on, I just, just kind of let it play through because I just thought it was a cool song. And you'll see on my, uh, my forum profile, it says, Just a Desperado Under the Eve. And that's the name of the song is Desperados Under the Eaves. And uh, Don't the Sun Look Angry Through the Trees. It's, uh, it's a cool song. I hope you enjoy it. I hope it's a good start to your weekend. I hope the mo you make the most of your weekend. Uh, get out there and get shit done this weekend, folks, because as I've said before many times, when they bury you, they'll put a stone on the ground or something similar somewhere, and there'll be two years. And in between those years, there'll be a dash. That dash is you. 
make the most of your dash. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. I was staring in my empty coffee cup I was thinking that the gypsy wasn't blind All the salty margaritas in Los Angeles I'm gonna drink them up And if California slides into the ocean Like the mystics and statistics say it will predict this motel will be standing until I pay my bill What don't the summer gang with the trees Don't the trees look like crucified bees Don't you feel like desperados under the up in the mornings with shaking hands and I'm trying to find a girl who understands me but except in dreams you're never really free don't the sun look angry at me I was sitting in the Hollywood Hawaiian I was listening to the air conditioner hum. Yet when